0: Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to our planning podcast series here on UBS Conversations. Today we are joined by two senior wealth strategists from the advanced planning team here at UBS. Brad Dillon, based out of New York City, as well as Joanna Morrison, based out of Chicago. Now today, Brad and Joanna will be providing some highlights from their new white paper, Planning for LGBTQ Individuals, including what makes planning for LGBTQ couples unique, starting a family as an LGBTQ couple, and considerations for estate planning. Now for some context on the team, the Advanced Planning Group consists of former practicing estate planning and tax attorneys with extensive private practice experience and diverse areas of specialization, including estate planning strategies, income and transfer tax planning, family office structuring, business succession planning, charitable planning, and family governance. They provide comprehensive planning, and sophisticated insights, as well as education to ultra-high net worth clients. So Brad, Joanna, great to be with you both, and thank you for spending some time with our listeners and our clients here on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Brad, to begin with you, so since same-sex marriage became the law of the land here in the United States seven years ago this month, from your vantage point, Brad, what makes planning for LGBTQ couples unique?
1: Well, thank you, Dan, for having me, and thanks for all the listeners who are joining. And the first thing I'll say is happy Pride Month. That's a great question you ask. What makes it unique? You know, we've been allowed to get married for the last seven years since the Obergefell v. Hodges decision uh, from the Supreme Court in 2015. In fact, many same-sex couples did rush to the altar uh, at that decision. The Williams Institute estimated that the number of same-sex couples who marry has nearly doubled since 2015 when that ruling came about. And that's, that's great. There's a doubling. But this rapid rise um, in recent years, despite the rapid rise, not many or not every same-sex couples, at least rushing down the aisle, only a little more than half of the approximately 1 million LGBTQ couples cohabitating in the U.S. are actually married. That's compared to nearly 90% of their heterosexual counterparts. So there's a big gap there. And so that's the first part. There's a lot of LGBTQ couples living together unmarried in the U.S., which is fairly unique when you compare it, of course, to our heterosexual counterparts. So why is this? Well, some of the couples registered as domestic partners or entered into a civil union. And when marriage became the law of the land, they didn't see any importance in going that next step. Importantly, of course, however, the federal tax law, for at least for our purposes, does not consider those who are registered domestic partners or who have a c- civil union, they're not considered married for the federal tax law. So a lot of different issues come up because a lot of those couples being unmarried. Another explanation is perhaps it's because we couldn't get married for so long and it's taking a while for the numbers to catch up. But my hunch really is that there's something more. There's LGBTQ individuals, we didn't grow up thinking that we could marry for love. And now that we can marry, a lot of us are thinking, well, should we get married? Now that we can get married, should we get married? And so what are the benefits and the drawbacks of marriage? We're thinking about it a little bit differently. It's not just for love. Um, But we're thinking about it more from an economic standpoint, a legal standpoint, doesn't make sense for us to marry. You know, a lot of those LGBTQ couples, of course, are marrying for love or for cultural, religious or other personal reasons. But like I said, many find financial tax or other legal or economic justifications for marriage or to stay unmarried. And so I just want to go through a few of those sort of benefits and drawbacks so we can really get a picture on the calculus that might be going through some of these decisions on whether to get married. Gains from the sale of a home, if certain conditions are met, the federal tax law allows up to $250,000 of gain from the sale of a home, an individual's primary residence, to be excluded from taxable income. The exclusion, if you're married, doubles to $500,000. So that's a really nice feature. If you have a primary residence, you can sell it. If you sell it for $500,000 more, than you asked for or less than you bought it for, then you can get that $500,000, uh, that extra, that growth really is, is not considered taxable income, which is a really nice feature. And then finally, for gift and estate tax purposes, transfers between spouses, married spouses, um, are, are qualified for a 100% gift and estate tax marital deduction. So if you make a transfer of assets to your spouse during your lifetime, you can give them a million dollars, and there's no tax consequence to doing that. You can wait until death, and they can inherit a million dollars from you. There's no tax consequence to doing that. You don't There's no gift to tax during life. There's no estate tax at death. Um, so that's also a really nice feature. It's something that's not available to unmarried couples, and it's something we'll get to in a moment. Finally, I just want to talk about the drawbacks of, of this calculus that I've mentioned before of whether now that we can get married, should we get married? There's an income tax marriage penalty for high earners in 2022 for single individuals reach the highest marginal rate of federal income tax, 37%, on income earned over $539,000 a night. Married couples hit that highest rate on income earned over six hundred and forty-seven thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars. That's well below a doubling of where the single is, the five hundred and thirty nine thousand nine hundred figure. If they were married couples are treated the same for an income tax purposes, you know, that figure would be doubled for married couples filing jointly, that five thirty nine figure, but it's not. It only goes up from five thirty nine to about six forty seven. So two married high earners would therefore have to pay more federal income tax then they may have had to pay had they remained unmarried. This is called the marriage penalty. So there's a financial, because there's a financial penalty associated with married couples who are both high earners. Couples may not avoid this penalty, of course, um, by filing separately either, which is uh, something to note. For debts, another drawback, state laws differ, but marriage often entails subjecting one spouse to the debts and credit history of the other spouse. That might be something uh, when you're making this decision about whether to marry your partner, you look at their debts or their credit history and it may not make sense, particularly if you have large asset purchases coming up or financing that's needed or required. So that's something to look out for as well. And then there's some more complex estate planning matters. Tax status of certain trusts. Prior to the legalization of same-sex marriage, many of these LGBTQ couples engage in gift and estate tax planning by setting up trusts for their unmarried partners naming that unmarried partner as a trustee of a trust, getting married after such transactions. So they may have set that up pre- or Bergerfell ruling 2015 and got married after. But that can engender a lot of unintended consequences. When you set up certain kinds of trusts or you name uh, a trustee that's not your spouse, during the time you set up the trust, there's not some negative tax consequences associated with that. But with getting married, the tax law pays particular attention to intrafamily transactions, including to spouses. And so some of those innocuous transactions that you did before marriage because you were having the trust benefit an unmarried partner or unmarried partner become a trustee, those were an innocuous feature of the transaction. But post-marriage, they can have really deleterious income and gift and estate tax consequences. So it's something also to also watch out for. I just want to go back for a brief minute on those couples who choose not to marry, as it appears that many LGBTQ couples are choosing, in fact, not to marry at the moment. Unmarried couples aren't afforded any rights under the law as it pertains to taxation, so they need to be particularly vigilant in their financial transactions between one another. The federal tax law, like I said, allows unlimited transfers between spouses without taxation. Unmarried couples can only give each other about $16,000 a year without being required to report a taxable gift on a gift tax return. You can imagine a lot of times where this might come up where for example you have unmarried couples maybe they've been together for 20 years maybe they have children together maybe one of the partners is the earner and the other one maybe stayed at home to take care of the children just like a regular heterosexual couple might and what happens in that moment if they're unmarried say that earning spouse goes and purchases a home that the family lives in the title's the home in the joint names of both unmarried partners that would be considered a taxable gift a transfer of half of the home to the other partner which would require a filing of a gift tax return utilizing one's lifetime federal gift tax exemption amount or perhaps even worse, having to pay gift tax on that transaction. Now, no one's paying attention a lot of times to who's paying for what and how much is going and when, and have we spent more than $16,000 in annual exclusion amount in that year? And so that's why I'm saying unmarried couples have to pay a lot more attention to the rules out there because they don't have this unlimited transfer between spouses feature from marriage. And so they have to pay a lot very very particular and close attention to their financial transactions between one another uh, so they don't get tripped up with all of the gift and estate tax rules out there. Finally, for unmarried couples, something you'll watch out for, of course, is it's just their, their regular estate planning, their wills, their health care proxies, their powers of attorney. Where do you want your assets going? Of course, the state law is going to, if you don't have a will, state law governs where your assets go at death. And I can guarantee you they don't go to an unmarried partner unless you've stated specifically that you want that in your will. So if you want your unmarried partner to be able to inherit your assets at your death, you have to have a will to do that. And then the same for a healthcare proxy. If you want your unmarried partner to make healthcare decisions for you in the event you become incapacitated, that's something to watch out for. Some doctor in a hospital isn't going to just let some unmarried partner make healthcare decisions for someone that's maybe on life support or someone that needs artificial nutrition or or something like that. So there's something else to watch out for if you want your unmarried partner to be able to make those important life decisions those healthcare decisions for you in the event that you become incapacitated, you're going to have to have a healthcare proxy. And the same goes for your financial decisions, having the power of attorney in place. that So again, the unmarried partner could make financial decisions on your behalf, continue paying the mortgage, continue paying rent, continue any financial transactions that were in place, access your bank account, things like that. The sort of basic things that you would hope that your unmarried partner of X number of years would be able to to maybe potentially access or effectuate these financial transactions. Well, in order to do that, you have to have a financial power of attorney uh, naming that unmarried partner as the agent, in fact, or attorney in fact. And so, something to watch out for. Again, you've got to be more vigilant in your transactions between unmarried partners. But also, you have to you have to put a lot of other documentation in place to ensure that you get some marriage like qualities to your relationship that probably adhere to exactly what you want and what your wishes are and your intentions are between you and your partner.
0: Well, Brad, thank you very much for covering all of that ground with our listeners and our clients. A lot there to take away a lot of considerations for our clients. So appreciate the insights and the perspective, Brad. Uh, Joanna, to welcome you into the conversation, what would you say are some key considerations for unmarried LGBTQ couples when starting a family?
2: Thanks, Dan. And thanks, everybody listening. I'd like to echo Brad's sentiments and say happy Pride Month, everybody out there. But to focus in on your question, Dan, LGBTQ individuals and same-sex couples, you know, when they're looking to start a family, there are a number of different ways they may go about this. We find that's most common to use um, adoption or artificial reproductive technology, commonly referred to as art. And what we're seeing is that the legal relationship between a parent and a child, they're state law concepts, right? And these state laws are just not keeping up with what I would consider the modern family. When I was looking through to help write this white paper, a lot of these laws were put together in like the 60s and the 70s, and they're just very dated, So while an adoption decree is indisputable evidence of the parentage of a child and post-overdevelopment, a married same-sex couple, they can petition to adopt jointly so that both individuals be recognized as a child's parent. But in some states, unmarried couples, they can't adopt jointly. And and that's problematic when you think about obviously having the legal parent-child relationship for emotional reasons, but just for practical everyday reasons. Think about enrolling a child in school or taking that child to the doctor and being able to make medical decisions for the child. Some states will allow unmarried individuals to do what's called a second parent adoption. So the first partner would do uh, the adoption. And then the second partner would come later and do the second parent adoption. Now that's not the case in all states. So you have to be very careful when you're thinking about this. What is my state law and how do they recognize this relationship when we're trying to adopt a child? If you're thinking about using assisted reproductive technology to conceive there again, you have to look at the state laws. Many state laws say the woman who gives birth to the child will be the child's mother and the mother's husband is going to be presumed to be the other legal parent. Now for obvious reasons that doesn't work necessarily with LGBTQ individuals and same sex couples, the Supreme court has said, well, we have to apply the law the same. So if we're going to say it's the mother's husband, it would just be the mother's spouse. So if you're going to be uh, biologically considered the child's mother that mother's spouse will be presumed to be the other legal parent. But if you think about that, for unmarried individuals, it's problematic. So you could end up in a situation where two partners have raised children, one partner is considered to be the mother, but because they are not married, the second partner will, later down the line, have no rights, come a custody dispute or something to that effect. So there are just all these things to think about just because state law has not kept up.
0: So, Joanna, as a follow-up, do you have any estate plan drafting tips that you can share with our listeners and clients?
2: I guess, of course. So when it comes to providing for children down the line, if that legal relationship that I've been going on about hasn't been established, you need to be very purposeful in naming the children in the document or who you consider children. You can expand the class of beneficiaries. It's quite common now to say, I consider anybody adopted down the line to be a child or a descendant. And likewise, if you want people who are conceived via artificial reproductive technology to be included, you need to state that in the document. Other things to think about, what if somebody down the line decides I'm changing my gender or my name? Let's say you put Joanna in the document, but I decide to transition and I become Joe. What does that mean? And I think that people need to be very thoughtful about that. And if they mean for Joe to be able to take, then that needs to be included in the document. Gender neutral pronouns might be more respectful in the document and In the boilerplate, sometimes we'll put something like pronouns are here only as a guide. And I think that could be very helpful to add to your document.
0: Well, Joanna, as well as Brad, thank you both for dropping by UBS On Air Conversations for this very important and productive conversation. A lot here in the way of takeaways that serve well for follow-up conversations clients may have with their financial advisor. So thank you both again for your time and insights today. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Dan.
0: Neither UBS, Financial Services, Inc., nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities or views stated herein. Any specific Securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different in material ways. We are governed by different laws and separate arrangements